This is the Fearless Presentations Podcast, the fastest, easiest way to reduce public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stannard. Hello and welcome to the Fearless Presentations podcast brought to you by the Leaders Institute and fearlesspresentations.com. I'm your host, Doug Stannard, president of the Leaders Institute, and this podcast is really there to help people just like you get rid of public speaking fear and increase your success by increasing your confidence when you communicate. Now, we've got a great topic for you today. This is podcast number 23, and on this episode, we're going to show you a few closely held secrets from some of the really best motivational speakers in the modern era. Over the years, I've, I've, um, I've really uh, dissected the motivational speeches of great speakers like Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar and Paul Harvey, Les Brown. And if you stick around toward the end of the podcast, I'll share with you one of Les Brown's secrets that made him millions of dollars as a keynote speaker. And you can use the same thing in your own presentations. This podcast is brought to you by fearlesspresentations.com. And by the way, we offer three five-minute videos on fearlesspresentations.com that will help you analyze your strengths as a, as a speaker, identify where your nervousness is coming from and, and how to conquer it. And also, it gives you the pros and cons of different types of presentation skill development programs. Each one of the videos is less than five minutes long, and they're, and they're absolutely free. All you really have to do uh, if you're a podcast listener is just go to fearlesspresentations.com. And then on the homepage, you'll see a big YouTube screen. Just register with the site and you'll get access to all three videos. So let's get started with today's hot topic. So the hot topic on today's episode is how to design killer content for your blog posts and motivational speakers and even keynote speeches, if that's what you're you're trying to design. Um, and I, I'll, I'll kind of start by giving a little bit of history about how I came to acquire this this knowledge about how to do this really, really effectively. So way back in, in 2000. I partnered with a guy here in Dallas who was a speaker and trainer, and he had he had just acquired a huge contract to do leadership training for a national trade association, and he asked me to kind of join him. He, he basically needed instructors to be able to help him teach all these programs. So this was a big break for me because although I'd done pretty well in my first few years as as a speaker, you know, clients were still pretty hard to come by even you know back then. Uh, so when he and I first met, though, he mentioned that he was writing a book or that he had, he actually told me that he had just finished writing a public speaking book. And, you know, and it was kind of in the final stages of, of editing. So being a pretty good content designer myself, you know, I, I, I built an entire presentation around that the the content of that public speaking book right so and from time to time i'd ask him about how the book was coming you know is there is there a target date on when this thing's going to be published you know and he kept responding with it's just almost ready final touches right so that was in early 2000 well to all of 2000 goes by most of 2000 or all of 2001 goes by he's still giving me excuses and and after 2 years of delay i finally realized that this book was never going to get finished <laughs> it was one of those things that he kept he 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 and i had both been promising our clients that there was going to be a textbook for this public speaking class that, that i'd been teaching and uh, and so i you know i was a little i was pretty kind of disappointed i i had 
uh, I had uh, really counted on on you know that promise being kept. So I finally realized that if I really wanted to have a textbook for this book that I'd created, I, I should probably just design the book myself. And since um, you know, one of the things that I kind of thought about at the time was whether you're communicating by the spoken word or or via written text, the goal is still the same. You want to communicate those important ideas in such a way that your audience or readers, for that matter, can really retain the information. And you also have to be able to make the communication somewhat entertaining so that your listeners or readers will continue to pay attention. So out of necessity, I sat down at my computer and I wrote the book, Fearless Presentations. And and just so you know, that whole process from the time that I sat down at my computer and started typing to the time that it was ready to be uh, published took a total of about three weeks. It wasn't really as hard as what you might think it would be. Um, and really, and the only reason it actually took me that long is that I type really slow. So, so um, basically what I'm going to cover in this episode is I'm going to explain a step-by-step process that I went through uh, that, that you can use as well. If, you, if you're trying to create content for motivational speeches or keynotes or books or blog posts or whatever it is that you're trying to create, you can use this process to to create that content and do it in a much faster way than what most people would. So step number one in this process of designing killer content is you want to identify a specific challenge that you can help your audience fix. Uh, you know, the uh, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, he wrote the, the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He said, inside every problem lies an opportunity. And that's what good content providers do. They're helping people solve problems. They're helping people fix challenges that they that, that they have. And if you're able to do that, you can you can uh, create an unlimited amount of, of content for your blogs or for motivational speeches or presentations or whatever it is that you're trying to create. So the most important you know starting point in designing context is identify what that problem actually is. Now um, it it's it does absolutely no good to design content if no one really cares about that content that you're creating, I'll give you some examples. Like I'm a big fan of the the TV show Shark Tank, and uh, you know I've seen all the reruns and everything. You know, I think it's on the what is it uh, CNBC or whatever it is. And uh, one of the things I've kind of noticed is that every season there will be quite a few products or services that are pitched to the sharks, where the guest who are pitching these ideas or or these products or services or ideas have really forgotten about this first step, really forgotten that, Hey, if you want to create a product, if you want to create a service, it has to actually fix a challenge that people actually have. Right. So, uh, and I think sometimes these, um, sometimes these folks on Shark Tank actually forget that. Um, I, I came across a, uh, an article written by Linda Holmes uh, that highlighted a few of these, challenges that that came up on shark tank and she it's an article titled step right up and i've linked to it in the in the in the blog notes so at the end of the session i'll give you the the link to get to the blog notes that will kind of take you to any of the the content that i'm talking about here but basically what she did was she picked a a group of uh, products or services that were just kind of laughable that they, they were things that they were solving problems that didn't really exist, right? So I'll give you some examples. Like, for instance, there was one where um, a, a couple created some pajamas for toddlers that had little toy squeakers in the knees. 
So basically, every time the the uh, toddler that was crawling around the floor would would um, step with his or her knees, it would create that little squeaking sound, squeak, 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 all the way across the the floor and everything. And although the sound might be a great way to kind of keep tabs on your, you know, your newly mobile baby. I suspect that most parents would actually go nuts from the constant squeak, 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 squeak all the time. So, so I doubt that they actually sold many of these things. Uh, another pitch was a service that would send you FedEx tags for your luggage so you didn't have to pay airline baggage fees when you travel. Now, in order for this to be a, a good idea, you have to forget that you have to plan ahead in such a way that you can allow this service to actually send you those tags in advance. And then once you get the tags, you have to get those that luggage to FedEx. So you either have to call FedEx for a pickup or you have to drop it off at a local Kinko's or FedEx office or whatever it is now. And um, and then, uh, by the way, the the fee to actually that FedEx would charge to ship a bag is typically about 90 bucks each way. So, you know, or you can pay the $25 fee at the airport. So I, I, I doubt that many people actually use that service. Now, again, it's the problem of paying baggage fees is, is a real problem to a lot of travelers, but this service didn't actually fix that. It didn't fix that problem. Um, I think one of the, one of the, the items that came that was on the list that was, I had never, I didn't actually see the Shark Tank that this one appeared on. And I'm not even sure it actually made TV, but it was in her list anyway. But it was called the, uh, the Euro Club. Now this was a golf club that would allow a male golfer to relieve himself on the golf course without having to interrupt the game by finding one of those inconvenient bathrooms. <laughs> and that she, she actually posted the, uh, the video to the commercial, which I, I kind of posted on the, on the, uh, on the show notes as well. Um, just keep in mind that if you are easily offended, do not watch the video. I don't need the emails from folks saying, Oh my God, I can't believe you put that on your, on your blog post. It, it is pretty offensive, but hilarious. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. Um, the point is, is that the one thing that each one of these entrepreneurs forgot was that in order for a product or service or, or an idea to be popular, it has to solve a need of a customer. So, so basically, uh, what you want to do when you're designing your content, when you're designing your blog posts, when you're designing your keynote speeches, when you're designing your motivational speeches, when, when you're designing your presentations is you got to identify what those specific challenges are that the audience will face. Now, and by the way, there are a few simple ways that you can kind of find out what these challenges are. If you want to find out what kind of challenges your clients or your customers or your potential clients have, the easiest way to figure that out is just to ask them. You know, when you interact with a customer or client, ask them what keeps them up at night. Ask them if they, if, especially if you have a good relationship, they're going to tell you. So ask them what, what are those challenges that they really would like to, to solve? What is that? What are those things that are kind of the, the big bugger boos for them that they, they want to get rid of? Another good technique is to ask your sales reps. You know, your, your sales reps, your salespeople will, make, um, will talk to people all day long and, a lot of times they're answering those same questions over and over again. They, there are, there are questions that a customer or a potential customer is going to ask. And they, and these are the things that the salesperson or the salespeople can kind of answer in his or her sleep. Um, make a list of those things and create content on, on your website or create presentations or, or, um, videos on your website that will help answer those. And it'll save your salespeople a lot of time and actually get you more, more customers as well. 
Another good way to uh, identify what these challenges are are look at the comments on your social media posts. Look at your Facebook posts. Look at questions that are coming to you via Twitter and and any of those social media out outposts. Or uh, we'll kind of have a, a list of of different things that you can kind of pull from. And if you don't have a lot of interaction on your own social media posts, look on your competitors' websites or on their blog posts or on their social media posts. See what questions are being asked of your competitors. And sometimes that can give you a good idea of content as well. Um, if you happen to be giving speeches or presentations now, then just add a Q&A session, the question and answer session somewhere during the, the, the presentation. Now, typically, I'm not a real big fan of Q&A sessions. I, I a lot of times they seem kind of hokey and forced and, and uh, they, they don't really work very well. However, if you're trying to get challenges from, if you're trying to find out what challenges are from the people that are actually in your audience, then if you get them to tell you why you're actually speaking, if you kind of listen to the questions that they ask, a lot of times it will steer you in the right direction. And then the by far the easiest and simplest way, though, to kind of find out what kind of needs or challenges that your your audience has is to just put yourself in the shoes of the person that's in your audience. So like, for instance, when I first started writing the book, Fearless Presentations, I didn't have a lot of time to do a bunch of market research. I was under a time crunch. So what I had to do was I had just had to try to picture myself as the person who was struggling with stage stage fright, which, by the way, wasn't that hard to do because less than a decade before I was writing the book, I was actually that person. You know, I was that person that was struggling with stage fright. So and I just made a list of the different things that a person in that situation might be struggling with. And once I had the list, I had basically had the chapters of my book. Now, you can do the same thing. Once you have that list, you can have um, titles of your blog post or once you have that list, you can have bullet points in your keynote presentation. So identify what those specific needs are that your audience has and then and then use your content, your presentation, your blog posts as a way to help people kind of solve that. Now, um, the next stage. So after you kind of identify what the real needs of your audience are, the next stage is you don't really have to reinvent the wheel. You can actually look for research from other experts. There are other people out there that have likely done similar kind of studies. And if you can kind of get information from other experts, it can save you a whole lot of time. Um, in the past, as a speaker especially, I really downplayed the value of statistics and quotes from other experts and that kind of thing. And the reason why I downplayed these two pieces of evidence was because I've been around the block long enough to know that you can you can find statistics that will verify just about any idea on the planet. So um, it, it's one of those things that um, you, you have to kind of take resistance with a grain of salt. You have to kind of use them strategically. However, in recent years, I've come to really rely on both of these types of evidence more heavily, especially in my presentations, in my speeches, in my motivational speeches. I'll, I'll kind of give you some examples. When I first wrote the Fearless Presentations book, I um, when I was covering this in the chapter, uh, I referenced the study by Cordell and Cordell. That's a, a pretty famous law firm. I think they're based in St. Louis, but they have offices all over the United States now. Um, back when I when I mentioned this, though, I think they only had the one office. So I think my Fearless Presentations book might have might have actually uh, helped them grow their their law firm. That's a joke. But um, but anyway, uh, but I did reference them back before anybody knew who they were. Um, but basically what they found was that over 50 percent of court cases utilized an expert in some capacity. Uh, 
this was an important point, especially when I when I wrote fearless presentations, because if a person in a lawsuit could get an unbiased third party who is also considered to be an expert in that field to verify what he or she was claiming in the lawsuit, then it was much easier to get a jury to agree with that person as well. So and, and by the way, you can use the same type of evidence in your speeches, in your blog posts. Just quote an expert or or you can Google statistics about this thing that you're you're talking about just basically put whatever the topic is or the title of the challenge that you've come up with into google and just type the word statistics in there somewhere and there'll be some type of statistic that will come up related to that that um, item or that content now one of the things that we did early on with the fearless presentations class was that um we used to have well yeah we still do by the way but but we used to have um People, when they would start taking the fearless presentations class, take a, a pre-survey. And then at the end of the class, they'd take a post-survey as well. So we'd have them kind of score themselves on a, on a scale of like 1 to 10 on how effective they think they were in certain areas of delivering a presentation. And they'd do that before and after the class so that we could see a and what they thought anyway their improvement was after taking the class. Now, there were also a couple of questions on the post-survey that or the exit survey that that um, we kept really close track of. One was we asked the person who was taking the survey, "Do you think you got your money's worth for attending the public speaking class?" And then the second one we asked, "Would they feel comfortable referring a friend to the class?" And one of the things that we kind of noticed the first three, four, five, six years or so of teaching the fearless presentations class, I mean, the class was so good that we had. I think by the time we had about 3,500 graduates from, of the class, every single person, every single one of those 3,500 people, when they got to those two questions on the exit survey, answered yes. So they would say, yes, I got my money's worth, and yes, I feel comfortable refer, uh, recommending this class to a friend. Um, and that was it, that was like gold to us when we were when we were. This was like before Facebook. This was before social media, that kind of thing. So um, basically, we were using that statistic as a way to help people relieve the risk anyway, re reduce the risk of somebody paying the fee to actually come to one of our two-day public speaking classes. Because, heck, if 3,500 people in a row went through the class and said it was worth, the, worth their investment, there's a good chance that the 3,501st one is probably going to get a similar result. Well, somewhere in, I think it was like 2007 or so, we got our first no in the blank. It would threw us for a loop because, you know, we, I mean, we, it was just automatic. You know, people would go through the class. They loved it so much. They'd check yes, yes. And, and we were all excited about it. Um, and then all of a sudden we got one no and we were kind of shocked. We were like, oh my God, what do we do now? And the only thing we could do was update the statistics. So basically on our website for years, for the first, you know, three, four, five years or so that we were teaching the class, it would have um, you know, if we had on our website that 100% of participants in exit surveys say the class was worth the investment and 100% say they would recommend it to a friend. And so we had to change that to 99.97 because that's basically whatever, whatever that number was, um, one divided by that number is what it came out to be anyway. So it was a really, really, um, uh, high number for uh, satisfaction. You know what was interesting though was that in 2007, after we got that first no, and we and we we um, updated the statistic on the website, we actually doubled the number of participants who took the class that year. So I guess the 99.97 was a little bit more realistic than 100. percent But but um, you can you can 
even with uh, the uh, smaller statistic, it was still pretty clear to see that that you know it's it's a pretty good value, right? So, well, very effective for us. So you can use statistics. That when you get really accurate statistics like that, you can use those as a way to really prove to an audience that what you're saying is true. Now, today, statistics are a whole lot easier to come by. And that's why I've kind of changed my tune on these um, pretty dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, for instance, in the last couple of years uh, on the website where we used to put the 99.97 and eventually it went back up to 99.99, you know, because, you know, we went years without another no. But um, we eventually... Uh, replace that with a um, uh, a, uh, a rating system that folks could come on. People who had been through the class could actually come on and leave a rating, just like on you know Amazon or on movie on on movies and that kind of thing, movie websites and that kind of thing. So um, so now, and that changed things pretty dramatically as well because now the statistic is still there. It still has the five out of five stars on there, but now people can kind of scroll through and see what the actual comments were from the people that went through the class. And, and you got to think, I mean, one of the neat things about having a, having an online type of survey like that, that can be very helpful if you're trying to get information for a presentation is that when, when people are really happy with something, they don't always give you a comment. You know, it's, I mean, you have to really go above and beyond the call of duty for, to get somebody to take time out of the day to actually fill out a comment on a website, to go actually go back to the website after they purchase something and, and to, and to leave you a review. Uh, especially if that happens to be a couple of days or weeks after they've, they've, um, they've received the benefit of that, of that service. But if somebody's really upset, you can dang sure bet they're going to go onto that website right away, right? And so if you if you can scroll through a website and don't see and you don't see any of the the negatives, that means that you got a really good product, you got a really good service, and so the, so those kind of things can really really help if you're trying to um, if you're trying to to instill proof or, or get proof that what you're saying is true. Um, now, in addition to you know statistics, because statistics can be very helpful. A quote from an expert can also be, can be very, very effective as well. Um, I started really a, a couple of years ago, I started using quotes a whole lot more and it, it came as a result of, of, um, a study that I did, uh, to try to help people become motivational speakers. Now, so I'll give you kind of the background here. Um, after being in the speaking business for, you know, whatever it was, almost two decades at the time, I kept getting these up and coming young motivational speakers that were coming through either my public classes or they were applying uh, to be, for teaching positions with my company. And one of the things that they would often ask me about is how do you actually design a good motivational speech or a good keynote speech? And and from my perspective, by the way, I, because my background is in training, I'm not I, I'm not most people wouldn't consider me to be a motivational speaker, although if you do training really, really well, it can be extremely motivational. It can be extremely fun and, and helpful to, to folks. And so from my perspective, um, they were very similar, you know, the, whether it's a motivational speaker speech or a keynote speech, or whether you're doing training, it's very similar. You still have to entertain your audience in order to get that information across to them. But motivational speeches, especially keynote speeches are, are typically a little different. They're a lot of times the folks who are listening to a motivational speech aren't necessarily there to take a lot of notes and, and, and they're, they're not really there for the content. They're there for the emotion, right? So you have to move people to action with emotion, which 
is a little bit different skill than actually training. And so, um, so I did a lot of studying back then on how to actually become a, a real motivational speaker, how to design a, a motivational sp- a speech in an effective way. So, um, what I did was I just went back to people that I respected in the industry, people who motivated me. And, and I started with, you know, two of the big ones, you know, Zig Ziglar and Paul Harvey. I mean, those were, I remember I, my first experience with Paul Harvey was actually in the fourth grade. My, my teacher, Mrs. Lofton in the fourth grade actually gave us a Paul Harvey book as uh, to, to do a book report on. And I was hooked. I mean, he, he was basically one of those rest of the story books where he would um, give us a, this really detailed kind of story about, about a, a life changing experience that somebody had, which was, which was really fun. Um, so Zig, both Zig Ziglar and Paul Harvey were really, really effective at telling stories. They were fantastic storytellers and, and probably two of the best storytellers in the modern era anyway. I think that their ability to really captivate audiences with the detailed stories made them, you know, two of the most sought after speakers, especially in the 1970s, 1980s, that time period. And then another one of my heroes is Brian Tracy. He was, um, Brian Tracy has a way of taking stories and making them very interesting, but then also mixing in analogies and metaphors to add some flavor, to add some fun to the, to the presentation. And by the way, I'll cover that later in this, in this uh, episode about how you can add these analogies and metaphors in. But, um, but so the, the big thing though, is that when I got to one of my, my all time favorite motivational speakers, his name is Les Brown, Les Brown, is he's one of those really contagious enthusiasm kind of speakers. He gets the audience really up and moving. I mean, you can't if you listen to a Les to Les Brown speech. Uh, after you listen to a Les Brown speech, it's really hard to be unmotivated. I mean, he's he's just one of those guys that's very charismatic. So I went back through and instead of just listening to his speeches or watching his speeches like I had done before, I started to kind of really dissect what was the technique that he was using to really get people motivated. Now, obviously, his enthusiasm was key, but he was doing a couple other things that was really interesting. One of the things that I noticed that he did quite often, or he does quite often, is that he creates a motivational quote of his own teaching point. So instead of just giving a bullet point, he makes it into kind of a, a quote-worthy kind of saying, something that is repeatable. You know, sometimes he will, he'll do it in a rhythm or something like that, but, it, but he's basically making a motivational quote of his own. And then immediately after giving that motivational quote, one of the first things that he often does is he will reinforce his own quote with a quote from an expert in the industry. And he reinforces it. I, I give you an example of this. So uh, in one of his keynote speeches, he, he, he talks about how the motivational quote that he uses is that you have to take full responsibility for your life. And then he quickly quotes George Bernard Shaw saying that the people who get on in this world are the people who get up and look for the circumstances that they want. And if they can't find them, they make them. Right. So so basically it's a it's a motivational kind of quote that he uses to reinforce his own motivational quote. (laughs) And it's a very, very effective technique that he uses. And then. Uh, obviously one of the things that he will likely do right after doing that is he'll tell something from his own personal experience, a story from his own personal experience to verify that. And then a lot of times he'll use somebody else's story as well. Verification. So he's sinking in that, that motivational quote over and over and over again with different types of evidence that are all interesting. They're all entertaining. They're all fun 
to kind of use. So, so, um, so these short, easy to remember quotes can really add some credibility to the content. So don't make the mistake that I made early on and really underestimate their value. You really want to use these effectively, especially if you're doing motivational speeches or, or uh, blog posts, that kind of thing. So the next thing that you can do to, to really kind of create this content is add examples and stories in to explain the content that you're providing to your audience more easily. Uh, Rudyard Kipling has a quote where he says, if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. And I, I give you an example of this from my own life. You know, when I was in college studying business, you know, my dad invited me to a business conference in Fort Worth. And, I'd, uh, and at this business conference, there were dozens of, of motivational speakers and entrepreneurs that were presenting. And, and I, I got to admit, this was my first experience in, in front of professional speakers or people who were motivational. I, I'd never, I, I didn't even know that this genre of, of uh, speaking actually existed at the time. So I was mesmerized by the, the, these guys, these people who were on stage. And I was mesmerized by the wealth that, that was represented on that stage as well. So each one of the presenters got this speak for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour or so on, on a specific topic. And, and of course, being a, a, a young student, I was taking notes left and right. I mean, as, as, as many notes as I could muster, I was putting them down. And this was actually pre PowerPoint days, you know, so that we didn't have like uh, slideshows and that kind of thing. So back then what they, what, um, what uh, um, conferences like this would do is they had these big, huge TV screens uh, up in the rafters of the, of the Coliseum that we were in. And um, they had uh, slides, like physical slides that that would um, that would be um, projected onto onto these TV screens. And um, one of the things that I noticed about halfway through the the second morning that I was there during one of the short breaks that we had, the AV guys actually removed the lectern from the stage. Now I thought that was odd because up until that point, for the first day and and few hours that I was there, I noticed that every single speaker. That, that got up on stage to present was standing behind that lectern. And they were using the, the visual aids, those sli- that slideshow that was behind them as their, as their visual aid for the, the presentation. Well, the, so when the, when the uh, AV guys came and took the lectern down, I knew that something was going to be different about the, the next speaker. And, and right after the break, you know, there was a, you know, the, the music started playing and they introduced the next speaker and he came, you know, trotting up the stage. He's a little kind of portly, um, Southern pastor that that came up and that had uh, become a motivational speaker after years of, of being uh, in the church. And it, the neat thing that was di- the thing that was really different about him was that he basically just had a microphone in his hand. That was it. You know, he didn't have any visual aids. He, he didn't have any um, any corollary type things. He just basically walked back and forth across the stage. He would give his content and then he would recess, reinforce his content with story after story after story after story from his own personal experience. And it, he was he was really effective at painting a vivid picture in the mind of the of those of us who were in the audience with those stories, so it was it was charismatic, it was interesting, it was fun. Um, so as the conference ended, I asked some of the attendees who had met that week which of the presenters they thought did the best job. And five of the six people that I asked said that it was the pastor. It was the, that he was the guy that they remembered most. And in fact, many of these people that I asked were able to recall specific concepts from that speech. And I, I kind of started thinking back. This was back before I was a, um, a, a speaker myself. This was back when I was just kind of learning 
about how to be a good speaker by watching other folks who are on stage. And I kind of noticed that what he did that was different than the other speakers was he relied heavily on the stories and the examples. And I think that's what made him a real charismatic speaker. So uh, a good analogy for this is that um, if, you, if you think of your your presentation as as your presentation outline anyway, as as kind of like a sketch, you know, it's in black and white. It doesn't have any color in it. But when you add the stories in, that's where the color really comes into into that 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 painting or that that photo. So stories really add a lot of flavor to your presentation. Um, and then years later, after I became a, a professional speaker, I was at a mastermind group. It was, I think it was around 2009. There was a bunch of us that were in the room and all of us were in the same industry. All of us were were professional speakers. And one of the one of the members of the group was telling us about how one of his real claims of fame was that he always liked to give the audience more than what he promised, which is, a, you know, typically it's a that's a pretty good, um, pretty good habit to to kind of rely on. And he said he would always cover more content than what was in his agenda. And I was kind of shocked because one of the other speakers, one of the guys that had uh, been speaking for quite a bit longer than any of the rest of us in the room, he kind of looked at the guy and he rebuked him. And he said, hey, I hate to break this to you, man, but no one in your audience really cares about that extra content if they if you never show them how to use it. And we were all a little taken back by the criticism until he kind of continued. He said, it's not your content that makes you different than anyone else and than any, any of the rest of us here in the room. He said, it's your story. And if you sacrifice your story to add more content, then your audience will remember neither. And as soon as he finished saying that after with the experience that I had had training people, training uh, instructors and, and presenters, I was like, amen, brother, you know, <laughs> because great stories when you add those great stories into your content, your audience will remember both. They're going to remember the content and the story. So make sure and and insert those examples and stories into your presentation. Now, the one of the last things that you can do to, to really add to your content and make it more fun for your audience is really dramatize your content with a fun analogy or metaphor. And I talked about how Brian Tracy is really good at this. Um, uh, uh, one of the quotes that I came across was that a one good analogy is worth three hours of discussion. And I believe that to be true. And in fact, I, I um, when I was doing research uh, on this, I, I kind of went back and I was I wanted to see what other people were doing with, with analogies in their presentations and and um, how other instructors, how other trainers are really teaching people to use analogies better. And I found a website. It's called Better Explained, which, by the way, is an awesome uh, website. I think I'm probably going to use that as one of our tech finds in, in a future uh, a future episode. But there was an article on that website about how analogies work. And and basically what the author of that, that article said was that analogies are handles to graphs of a larger, more slippery idea. They're a raft across a river and can be abandoned once on the other side. Unempathetic experts may think that the raft is useless since they no longer use it, or perhaps they were such marvelous swimmers that they never needed it. So basically what you can see the author of that post is doing is he's using analogies to explain how analogies can be used, which is, I thought was brilliant. Brilliant way to kind of explain it. So basically what, what an analogy is, is it's a comparison. Um, we... We often think of a, of a speech or a blog post as a, as a presentation of just a long series of related ideas. But when you think that way, though, you're missing you know, the best part of communication. It, the, the, 
a good communication or a good type of communication is one where you make a connection with your audience. So the reason that analogies and metaphors work so well is that these literary devices help our brains make that connection between the new information that is being presented and, you know, something from our past that is more familiar, right? So, so, um, so the, the, some of my favorite analogies, I use these in class a lot. Um, some really famous ones from, from history. One was by William Paley. William Paley uh, wrote a book about, about, um, creationism in response to Charles Darwin's book. And basically what he said in his book was that anyone finding a pocket watch in a field will recognize that it was designed intelligently. You know, living beings are similar, similarly complex and must be the work of an intelligent designer. So basically he's saying, Hey, if you find a, find a watch in the, in the, on the, on the path in front of you, you know, it's really easy to see that some intelligent being actually created that and how much more complex is a human being than a, than a watch. Right. So um, another one that, that I use a lot in my public speaking classes by Winston Churchill, he said, a good speech should be like a woman's skirt <laughs> long enough to cover the subject and short enough to create interest. <laughs> so it's a, a funny, it's kind of crass, but a really funny way to, to um, kind of impart some wisdom about public speaking. Um, E.B. White, the, uh, the, the person who wrote um, Charlotte's Web, uh, talked about a joke. He said that, that explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You, you understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. So, so, um, and then, uh, one of my favorites is by Albert Einstein. He says that he's, he was trying to explain to somebody how a telegraph works. He says, he says, you see, wire telegraph is a kind of a very, very long cat. You pull the tail of New York and his head is meowing in Los Angeles. Do you understand this? And radio operates exactly the same way. You send the signal here and they receive it there. The only difference is that there's no cat. <laughs> so, so the neat thing about uh, analogies like this is that there, a lot of times you can use them as a, as a way to get, kind of create emotion and bring emotion into your presentation uh, where folks go, Oh, that's really interesting. That kind of thing. Right. It's also a good way to kind of add some humor into your presentation, just like some of those that we just mentioned were did. Um, I'll give you some that I've seen in my classes that that work really well. Um, the uh, the one one of the the fearless presentations that I classes that I taught very early on was for Capital One. It was actually for for um, the, the Capital One office that was, that's here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. One of my big first big clients, by the way. And there was a young lady in class that was explaining how how uh, communication between two departments that were working on the same project could be a little challenging, and she said that 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 miscommunication that sometimes occurs is kind of like having a checking account with your boyfriend. And she kind of explained her story about how she and her boyfriend were sharing a checking account for the first time. And, and it caused a few problems. She said that unless one party really takes responsibility for documenting all those transactions, that you're going to end up with an overdrawn account. And she said, she kind of analogized that to what was happening with the, the two different departments working on the same project is that if somebody's not documenting what's going on, there's going to be some miscommunication there. Um, another another um, presenter that was a retirement planner, he said that saving for your t- retirement is like planting a tree. You know, the earlier you start, <laughs> the bigger it's going to be when you need it. Right. And I think one of the funniest ones, though, was a, a couple of years ago, I had a guy that was um, he was a, a crane operator for a big company. And uh, he, w- he was explaining 
he was he was basically telling us a story about how when back when in his early years when he was a crane operator the foreman that he that he typically worked with had called in sick and and he needed, had another guy that was kind of uh, guiding his guiding him from the uh, guiding the crane arm anyway anyway and uh, the the terminology that this guy was using because he was from a different company was a little different than what he was used to and it almost caused a mistake that it, it very almost caused a guy to die. I mean, it was basically one of those things that because of that miscommunication, it, it, it created a very dangerous situation. And And he used an old Yosemite Sam cartoon to explain it. He said that he said that he once saw Yosemite Sam riding a camel that wouldn't stop. And he was and Yosemite Sam kept yelling to the camel, whoa, camel, whoa, but the camel wouldn't stop. So finally, Yosemite Sam jumps off the camel and and smacks the camel over the head with his rifle and says, when I say, whoa, I mean, whoa. And then the class member kind of finished by saying, you know, we shouldn't have to bludgeon our operators over the head to get them to stop for safety. So he used that as a way to kind of insert some humor into the the presentation. And uh, by the way, if you're looking at the class notes, or if you want to see the class notes, you can actually uh, uh, view the uh, the short excerpt of the Yosemite Sam cartoon on there as well. So use the analogy to reinforce your stories. So. So basically, if you kind of use these techniques, if you want to design great content for your blog posts or motivational speeches or keynote addresses, start by determining what your audience wants. Look for experts who can back up those ideas, add in some real life stories and examples, and then sprinkle in some analogies to dramatize your content. If you do this, you're going to have an unlimited supply of content for your blogs, your presentations, or for your motivational speeches. So to review the show notes, go to fearlesspresentations.com slash 3131. This is podcast number 31, so fearlesspresentations.com slash 31. Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week. 